This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at U.S.-China relations after the first summit discussions between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. President Biden has made China the main focus of U.S. foreign policy. Since coming to office, he signed a new security treaty with Australia and Britain, called AUKUS, which is widely seen as a move aimed at countering China. And Biden's also held a summit of the leaders of the Quad, India, Australia, the U.S. and Japan, all countries that have an interest in containing China's power. And there is no doubt that Chinese military power is expanding. The Chinese Navy is now bigger than the American Navy, and it's all concentrated in the Pacific. Beijing's recently tested a hypersonic missile, and it plans to quadruple its stockpile of nuclear weapons over the next decade. To analyze all this and more, I'm joined this week by Evan Medeiros, who worked as Director of China Policy in the Obama White House, and who's now Professor of Asian Studies at Georgetown University in Washington. So, where is the confrontation between America and China heading? The COVID-19 pandemic ensured that when the presidents of China and the US finally spoke to each other, it was a virtual meeting, not a face-to-face encounter. President Biden opened the summit by arguing that America and China need ways to manage their competition. Guardrails, as he called them. As I've said before, it seems to me our responsibility as leaders of China and the United States is to ensure that the competition between our countries does not veer into conflict, whether intended or unintended. Just simple, straightforward competition. And it seems to me we need to establish some common-sense guardrails to be clear and honest where we disagree and work together where interests intersect, especially on vital global issues like climate change. For his part, President Xi also made conciliatory opening remarks. But other meetings between US and Chinese officials during the Biden administration have been openly confrontational. In Alaska, in March, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, took China to task. Today, uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss key priorities, uh, both domestic uh, and global. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States. And that prompted a very sharp response from Yang Jiechi, China's senior diplomat. On cyber attacks, let me say that whether it's the ability to launch cyber attacks or the technologies that could be deployed, the United States is the champion in this regard. So does the relatively civil tone of the more recent discussions between Biden and Xi, the two leaders, mean that relations between America and China are now improving? That was the question that I put to Evan Medeiros. I don't think the meeting between Biden and Xi has really changed anything. I think at best you can say that it stopped a deterioration. So it sort of led to a plateau in what was a relationship otherwise characterized by rising tensions, diverging interests, 
you know, increasing ac- military activities on both sides. The way I see it, Gideon, is fundamentally the tension is between cyclical changes in the relationship and structural. And cyclically, we're entering into a period of warming, sort of, you know, detente, to use the Cold War terminology. But I think that's largely because the Chinese have a lot of domestic challenges that they have to deal with. The Olympics, of course, the coming party Congress in the fall. So it's to Xi's advantage to sort of eliminate volatility and problems in the U.S.-China relationship. That could be a distraction. It could be a political vulnerability for Xi. The question is, is whether or not this cyclical warming will turn into something longer and more extended based on dialogues and agreements between both sides, or whether or not the very substantial structural pressures for greater competition will persist. And those structural pressures, if you had to describe them from both sides, what are they? Well, first and foremost, it's that competition is expanding, intensifying, and it's diversifying. Simply put, we're now in a relationship characterized by divergence on issues of security, on economics, technology, and increasingly even ideology. And unlike the Cold War, all four of those are blurring together. And that's very problematic. Security issues have an economic dimension. Ideological issues have a technological dimension. So disaggregating them is going to be hard. A second factor to keep in mind is that both sides have a far greater tolerance for risk and friction in the relationship. They're adopting far more confrontational strategies, probing the other in a variety of ways. And then thirdly, many of the traditional stabilizers and buffers in the relationship are declining and many of them are inoperative. Those being what, business ties or personal ties? That's part of it. So economic ties and the role of the business communities in both sides, people-to-people ties, because there are a whole variety of civil society groups, the media, even universities become increasingly concerned about their interactions with China, frustrated by growing Chinese restrictions on U.S. NGOs in China. The role of leaders at the top, historically, the leaders at the very top of the relationship, uh, whether it's Deng Xiaoping and George Bush, Jiang Zemin and Bill Clinton, have stop deterioration and put the relationship on a better track. You have things like extended dialogues and confidence building measures that don't really exist right now. And I think the Chinese have shown they're not really that interested in those kinds of mechanisms. So many of the traditional uh, forces and tools at the heart of the relationship, I think, are really declining in irrelevance. And then you have you know, issues like nuclear weapons, which used to be in the background of the relationship, very rapidly coming to the foreground. Yeah. So let's talk about those military issues, because obviously an economic deterioration is one thing, but now people are talking about at least the risk of military conflict more seriously. Do you think that something has changed on the Chinese side? I mean, obviously, when you were in the Obama administration, you had to contend with this building of military braces across the South China Sea in the last couple of years, the pressure seems to have increased over Taiwan. Now, as you say, their nuclear program is expanding. So how alarmed should we be by what's happening on the Chinese side? I mean, we should be concerned. I mean, they are clearly making significant strides in their military modernization. But let's be clear, this is not a crash military modernization program. I mean, I can remember working at the Rand Corporation in the mid-2000s, and we saw very, very clearly that the Chinese understood that if they went to war over Taiwan, that they were going to have to deter U.S. involvement. So 
this is a program that's been 20 years in the making. Now, I think a lot of American policymakers took their eye off the ball in large part because of Iraq and Afghanistan, the focus on counterinsurgency and Islamic extremism. But nonetheless, we are where we are, which is we face a very substantial military challenge in the Western Pacific, in which the Chinese not only have a very sophisticated collection of conventional weapons that can threaten the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy. But now, according to the Pentagon, the Chinese plan is to quadruple the size of their nuclear arsenal by the end of the decade, which raises the question, are they seeking parity with the U.S. on nuclear weapons? Now, the U.S. under START has about 1,550 weapons. That is the START-mandated cap of deployed nuclear weapons. And so the question is, how much bigger do the Chinese want to go? And what exactly are they seeking with that size of a nuclear arsenal? Now, FT readers will have noticed that, you know, the FT has been running a lot on the story we broke about this hypersonic test that the Chinese did, which I think Mark Milley, the head of the Joint Chiefs, said was a Sputnik moment for America. In other words, comparing it to the launch of Sputnik by the Soviet Union. Why is this significant? Do you think it is significant? I do think it's significant, and it's significant in a number of ways. Number one is the fact that the Chinese have such a diverse and sophisticated hypersonic program, not just this hypersonic fractional orbital bombardment system. It's sort of a mouthful, but there's many other dimensions of hypersonics. Now, of course, the Soviets had a similar type of fractional orbital bombardment system, but it was intercontinental ballistic missile based. And as a result, it posed less of a challenge to the United States in particular because this system means that the Chinese could attack us with a nuclear armed hypersonic with very, very little early warning and basically no protection from a missile defense system. So in a crisis, the principal issue is vulnerability and vulnerability to an attack without warning. And this hypersonic FOBs program is that in spades. And you said that way back when you were working at RAN 20 years ago, the conclusion was that China wants to get to the point where it can deter the United States from intervening to defend Taiwan. So let's just talk a little bit about that Taiwan issue. I, I remember a leading American military man, I think Admiral Phil Davidson, said that he was concerned that within a few years, China could prevail over Taiwan. Joe Biden said recently that America would defend Taiwan, although they sort of then rode that back a bit because it seemed to be a hardening of America's commitment on Taiwan. But where do you think we are with that, both with our assessments of Chinese intentions on Taiwan and how America might respond? I mean, the Taiwan issue has always been the central political and security challenge at the heart of the U.S.-China relationship. And that challenge has intensified in recent years as the Chinese military has modernized. But it's important to keep in mind the Taiwan issue is fundamentally a political issue for China, not a military one, in the sense that it's a political issue that has a military expression, and the PLA has been very focused on giving the leadership capabilities so they have options if they want to solve the Taiwan issue militarily. In terms of time frame, it's very difficult to specify time frame because the Taiwan issue is more of a political issue than a military one for the Chinese leadership. And I think that the factor that we have to keep an eye on is, does the Chinese leadership 
see the window of opportunity to influence Taiwan closing. In other words, is a window closing where Taiwan becomes independent in perpetuity. And I think if they believe that a window is closing, either because of shifts on the mainland and or shifts in the U.S. involvement and connection with Taiwan, then I think they're going to begin to contemplate military options. I would note in the Chinese official public readout of the call between Biden and Xi Jinping, there was obviously a a lot said about Taiwan, but there was one sentence in particular that may be an unprecedented formulation. Xi Jinping said specifically, we have patience and will strive for the prospect of peaceful reunification with utmost sincerity and efforts. And so that's interesting. Now, of course, he's reaffirming the prospect of peaceful reunification, and there's been some debate whether or not Xi Jinping is moving away from that. But nonetheless, a statement like that by Xi Jinping shouldn't be ignored. And I think that what that tells you is the Chinese are anxious and the Chinese are concerned about trends in Taiwan, trends in U.S.-Taiwan relations. But I also think it means that we're not on the brink of war. But nonetheless, we have to pay very careful attention to the accumulating military capabilities and advantages on the part of the PLA. And I hope the Biden Pentagon is doing that. You hope it is. But um, as you said, the Chinese do seem concerned or seem to believe, at least according to their rhetoric, that America is quietly, inch by inch, changing the status quo on Taiwan. Do you think America is in fact doing that? No, I don't think the United States is changing the status quo in Taiwan. I think what the administration is doing is responding to the fact that there's a growing Chinese coercion of Taiwan. Uh, Of course, military coercion with all these Air Force flights in the Taiwan air defense identification zone, the growing use of disinformation operations. And so from the U.S. perspective, the U.S. approach to Taiwan as captured in the Taiwan Relations Act is about ensuring that Taiwan is uh, free from coercion and the mainland is deterred from using aggression to bring about some kind of change in the future. And to do that, you need a Taiwan that feels secure, a Taiwan that is more diverse in terms of its economic partners, a Taiwan that is more resilient, so it's less vulnerable to coercion and predation from the mainland. And I think that's what U.S. strategy is all about, is making sure Taiwan feels sufficiently secure in itself, that it's making the necessary investments. And there's a lot more that the Taiwan military needs to do. They've been slow to sort of implement this new defense concept that the current president of Taiwan, President Tsai and some of her military leaders have articulated. So I think that's what the U.S. is doing, is responding to changes in PRC behavior. A final point on this, Gideon, is that President Tsai Ing-wen is not like her predecessor, Chan Shui-bian, predecessor in terms of the last DPP president, right? She's not a bomb thrower. She's not sort of looking to push the envelope on cross-strait issues. I think she's really focused on consolidating Taiwan as a democracy. I think she's very focused on laying the foundations for enduring economic prosperity, which she believes are critical to a strong democracy. And I think she just sort of wants to park the cross-strait issue, put it to the side. Um, And the mainland just simply doesn't trust her. And that's what's been driving their multidimensional coercion effort. Let's take a step back and look at the sort of overall way that both the US and China are framing the relationship now. 
there's long been uh, talk in Washington that Biden himself or maybe one of the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan or Blinken, will give a big speech setting out America's approach to China. Do you think that they've yet decided what that strategy is? I think the strategy has been evolving. I mean, clearly in the first, let's call it 10 months, the strategy was based on the principle of sequencing. In other words, before we engage in sort of an extended dialogue and interaction with the mainland, America first needs to sort of rebuild itself at home and rebuild itself abroad. And I think that makes sense because, you know, people forget how much the U.S. was in disarray after Donald Trump. You know, so it was about getting a handle on COVID, re-energizing the U.S. economy, rebuilding the U.S. internationally. I mean, remember, we had left the WHO. We were sort of trying to strangle the WTO. So I think the Biden team felt like, look, we're really not in a position to start engaging in this comprehensive strategic competition with China until we fix many of the problems the previous administration has created. So it was about sequencing. It was sort of doing things methodically. And I think one of the most important dimensions of the Biden call with Xi was sort of signaling, okay, we feel that we've stabilized at home and rebuilt abroad, including generating some consensus among Asian allies, like with the Quad, European allies, about the fact that collectively we need to work together to address the myriad challenges posed by a rising China. And I think that's where we are today. And China? I mean, it's harder and harder, it seems to me, to get a read on what they're doing, partly because they're so cut off from the outside world because of the pandemic. She, I think, hasn't left China for getting on for two years now. But how do you think they are seeing this? I mean, you said earlier that China wants a year of quiet ahead of the party Congress, but more broadly, as she looks forward 10 years, what do you think their view of the relationship with the United States is? Well, when I think about Chinese foreign policy, it's always been a dynamic mix of both insecurity and confidence slash ambition. And I think that the tension between those two has become even more acute in recent years. And I think in particular, the sense of sort of confidence and ambition even evolving to the point of indignation is what we hear a lot from the Chinese today. The sense that their political and economic governance choices at home are just as legitimate and in, in their view, more effective than Western democracy and capitalism. And that's a very common narrative, not just among hardcore Communist Party members in China, but also among, you know, Chinese middle class friends of mine that I've known for a long time, people not involved in politics. And so I think that at some level, Chinese leaders believe that sort of now is their time. And the Chinese leadership now talks much more about, you know, the China option, this idea that Xi Jinping originally articulated in 2017, and has sort of grown and evolved and they now talk about a Chinese version of democracy, sort of adopting, you know, Western terms and talking about how their form of democracy may in fact be a much more effective and efficient one. So I think that's part of where they are, is this sense of Western capitalism led to populism, led to dysfunction, and perhaps their choices, while not directly applicable to any country in particular, is certainly just as legitimate. The thing that surprises me about China's external behavior is the inability to recognize the antibodies that they're generating. 
right? The fact that there are sanctions on EU parliamentarians and European scholars, their use of wolf warrior diplomacy against Sweden, right? I mean, of all European countries, really, you're going to pick a fight and bully the Swedes. And a lack of appreciation how that has generated support for things like the Quad, things like greater U.S.-EU coordination on China. And, you know, one wonders if, as Xi Jinping has consolidated power, centralized decision-making, whether he's not uh, really isolated himself in a way that has made it difficult for the top Chinese leadership to appreciate how much they're alienating key regions of the world, key economies with this more coercive, predatory behavior. So let's finish by looking at the economics and the business ties, which obviously are of interest to many FT readers and to the world. I mean, this is now the first and second largest economies in the world, a crucial trading relationship. A lot of people talking about a new Cold War, but a difference with the Cold War is that these economies are so deeply entangled. Do you think that we are going to see, to use the fashionable phrase, more of a decoupling of the US and Chinese economies? And how practical is that? So I think that is probably one of the most difficult issues at the heart of this evolving strategic competition between the United States and China. And make no mistake, the interdependence between the U.S. and China, it's not just economic. It's ecological, as Professor Joe Nye of Harvard has written. It's technological. So in some sense, pulling apart these deeply intermingled countries would be incredibly difficult and costly. And I don't think most Americans have really thought about the risks and costs associated with doing that. That said, as the security competition and the economic competition between the United States and China intensifies, and it will intensify, I think it's going to force American policymakers and business leaders to have this very uncomfortable conversation. Look no further than Wall Street, right? When you look at Wall Street's approach to China, people like Ray Dalio see China and managing the assets of Chinese citizens as this great wall of money and this incredible opportunity. But at the same time, you have concerns that American investment in China might directly or indirectly facilitate the rise of a company that would be a major technological competitor, a company, by the way, that probably benefits from lots of Chinese government subsidies, or could end up worse, funding a company that actually helps the PLA develop hypersonic weapons or some AI-enabled military tool. And as the national security competition intensifies, especially as weapons like hypersonics and nuclear weapons become more important to the military competition, I think it's going to force the U.S. to have some very difficult conversations about the risks and costs. So I do think there will be some selective decoupling. I think the other part of it is you're going to see the rise in the technology sector. You're already really seeing it in parallel supply chains developing. It's already happening in semiconductors as a variety of ancient semiconductor companies start to look at building chip fabrication facilities in the United States, because they know that if they want to sell to the U.S. government and to the U.S. consumer, they're probably going to have to build those chips in the United States, not in factories that also supply chips to China. We're in the very, very early stages of this whole 
decoupling debate. And I think it will be targeted. It will be selective. But I also think it's going to be when it comes to questions of investment, especially portfolio investment, I think it's going to be a very difficult, complicated conversation because it's going to force the national security specialists to deal with the investment community. And I think that that's going to be a very challenging conversation for the country. That was Professor Evan Medeiros of Georgetown University ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you'll be able to join me again next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.